Well, I just want to say uh, a couple things real quick this morning. One, thank you for many of you who have continued to help us sponsor uh, families in need in our community through the Christmas season. Uh, we still have a few gifts left to purchase if you have not participated in that and you want to. Um, uh, we sent our churchwide email, and if you didn't get that, just talk to me after the service or Pastor Holly, and we can make sure you get that information if you're wanting to be a part of that. And just as a reminder, uh, we do have a mission trip coming up next summer, and if you haven't signed up and you want to go on the trip, you can still sign up. Uh, that information is at the Welcome Center as well. Um, so I grew up in a family that always took vacations. Uh, they weren't glamorous or like expensive or extravagant, but we went somewhere and did something. And it always included driving, because my dad is petrified of planes, and so we drove across the country. Um, Colorado was as far west as we ever went, because that's a pretty far drive from Indiana. And um, I remember the first time I went to Colorado with my parents. I was 16, and I wasn't sure I really wanted to go, because you're 16. Um, and I, had, I got to drive part of it, because through like Kansas, it's so flat. Why would you not let a 16-year-old drive there? And, um, but it was so boring, and I was driving a full-size van. Like, not like the minivan, like the full-size that you don't know and buys, because it takes so much gas, right? Those vans. And, and I, I remember we got into Colorado, and so my, my dad's now driving, and we were driving in the mountains, And I will never forget this one experience as we're driving up to Estes Park, Colorado. Um, I noticed as I looked out the front windshield from like the middle row that the white line on the side of the road disappeared at times and wasn't there. It disappeared not because they didn't paint it. It disappeared because there was no room for it. Like, there was no word for the, them to paint. It was just you fell off the side of a mountain. And so I was a little bit petrified watching my dad drive through the mountains. And then I look up on the way to Estes Park, and I see in front of me a tour bus coming down the mountain. That's when I put on my headphones and closed my eyes and just decided I didn't need to watch this drive any longer. Right? We grew up going to, we have family in Tennessee, and so we drove down there a lot, and we drove through the mountains. I remember times when it would be icy in the winter, and you're just scared because they don't, function with ice there, and so my, I would just be like holding the seat and those kind of things, or I remember as an adult, I've driven through Virginia and West Virginia, and, and the speed limit doesn't drop that much even through the mountains. It's kind of amazing, actually, that there aren't more accidents, or maybe you're supposed to drive slower, and they don't know we're from the Midwest where it's pretty flat, and we don't know that, but I probably could tell you the story about windy roads that is kind of funny at one level and sad and sick at the other. Um, when I was a youth pastor, I went to a funeral, and so I didn't get to go with our students to Lake of the Ozarks, but I was driving down the same day they were after the funeral. And so I was in my own car, and I drove through these hills and valleys, and I literally was, made myself kind of sick, and I'm driving. And I'm going, oh, this is awful. And you finally get out of your car, and you're like, whew. And so I made a comment about it to like, the group, and they're like, yeah, you missed out on the tour bus because we had like a dozen students puke their guts out in the back back there. Thanks for missing that. I understood why. And so I left all of those things, like, what's my point of all that? Um, In each of those locations, if they had just used more dynamite, the roads would have been flatter, right? But seriously, how many times do we go someplace that we're grateful that someone has cleared a way that we can get there? Someone's gone before us, and they've made a way where it seemed like there was no way to get wherever it was we were going. In fact, that's kind of what we believe love is like. Love clears the way. Love makes space for other people. And so today is the second Sunday of Advent, the Sunday in which we talk about love. Right? I, I, there's not much I wouldn't do for my wife. 
I've told the story before, and I won't tell the whole story about when we were on our honeymoon. There was we were on, on this. There was this coastal drive by the ocean, and it was one of the worst drives I've ever been on in my life. It was one lane and switchback, and after about eight hours in the car that day, it was like seventy miles, but it took like eight hours. The speed was like ten and fifteen. Um, when we got done, it was a good thing it was our honeymoon, right? Because you're like, oh, the best of each other. Friends of ours took that drive a few years ago, and he's like, I thought we were going to get divorced when we got done. But love does kind of crazy things. And so the thing that should mark the followers of Jesus is this radical kind of extravagant love. It should be the marker of our lives. It should be what defines us. It should be what really sets apart people who say Jesus is Lord. And so sometimes we get it right, and sometimes we get it wrong. But the church really should be radically defined by this. And that is what the gospel writer of Luke wants us to understand. And so he kind of paints a picture for us using words, and Luke was a doctor, and and so he's analytical, and he wants us to have lots of information. And so he kind of inundates us with some information that at first glance in this text from Luke chapter 3, you might go, ah, I don't know why I need to know that, but I'll kind of give you my best guess as to why Luke would have said that. But Luke wants us to understand that, that Jesus isn't some part of a fairy tale and like this kind of weird story about this guy who came and he, he radically changed the Middle East and then people began to believe in him and we think he rose and died. Uh, you know, we're not really sure. No, Luke's point is here. I'm going to give you the best eyewitness accounts I can because at the end of the day, what I've come to believe is this. If you come to know Jesus in the depth of God's love, it will radically change your life. And that is ultimately Luke's goal. And so here's what Luke writes. Um, in Luke chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, here's what he writes. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Eturia and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it's written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. As I said at first glance, you're wondering what in the world is Luke talking about. He talks about Tiberius Caesar, which would have been the Caesar after Augustus Caesar. So what Luke is trying to get us to understand is what happened in the life of Jesus happened in a particular time in history. There were people that you can verify existed and lived and were known. And so it says in the 15th year of Tiberius, which would have been about 28 or 29 AD, and Israel at the time had been really controlled by Rome for over 100 years, but, but really it was 6 AD when Rome sent in kind of their own leaders to rule the area. And so this would have been during the time of Pontius Pilate. And so this is what's going on. And then Luke points out this kind of interesting thing. He talks about Herod um, or the Tetrarchs. Tetrarch just meant ruler of a quarter, but eventually came to be known as just ruler. 
And so there was Herod the Great, who had been before, and then his sons have kind of taken over during this time, and that's what he wants us to understand. And so during the life of Jesus, we see Herod play important roles. It's not the same Herod. Right? Herod the Great was the one when Jesus was born. Um, Herod Antipas was the one that was there when Jesus died. But why is Luke wanting us to know this? Because these people are people you can look up and see if they lived. And Luke wants to give even more credibility to the story of Jesus. And then he talks about Annas and Caiaphas. And you're going, well, um, I may not be a Jewish scholar, but I'm pretty sure there's only one high priest. And he says high priest, and he names two people. So how does that work? Well, you could only be high priest for a season. And once you were no longer high priest, you could not be high priest again. Um, Annas was Caiaphas' father-in-law. So think of it this way. Annas was the one pulling the strings of the puppet, and Caiaphas was the puppet. So it's why even at Jesus' trial, it's why he went to Annas first and not Caiaphas. But I want to point out one really obvious thing at first glance. Did you notice how all the people of political power in that day, whether we're talking about Rome or Israel, they're not the ones who carry the power of God. That would be the one in the wilderness. And isn't it just kind of like God, the way it works, that often we think of power and in hierarchical structures, and we think of power as a person at the top. But what he says, listen, power is not found in the places of government. Power is found in the wilderness, because that's where God shows up. And the message here was not primarily political, but religious. In fact, I love David Neal as a biblical scholar. Right? Uh, he's the editor of the, the book of Matt, the Luke commentary. Um, he writes this. He says, Luke seems concerned to show that the political powers of the day are not at center stage in salvation history. They are present. They have obvious influence. But they are subordinate to God's power and plan. True power is never found in government, but is always found in God. That's why what we find in the story of Jesus, it's the wilderness, it's Galilee, it's Bethlehem, it's Nazareth, it's places that really nothing good can come from. I mean, it's why that begins to matter so much about us. But, but these words of John, I think, are important for us even today. It's this. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Jews didn't get baptized. They didn't need to. They were Jewish. By birth, they were part of the people of God, so they didn't need to get baptized. That made no sense to them. They didn't need to, you know, think about whose land they were living. It was theirs. It didn't matter if Rome was there. And what we find in this was that that's just probably not true. They probably forgot in Leviticus 25 this reminder that all the earth is the Lord's. And so we're just resident aliens in the midst of where we live. And so baptism of repentance, like, I, I don't need to do that. That's for those who would be Gentiles. That's for those who are not God's people. That's for somebody else. It's for those who aren't a part of the church, right? You don't need to get baptized if you're part of the church. Like, I'm just in. I'm good. Baptism was the symbol for the people of Israel, the symbol of new life, right? We always go back to the story of Exodus in the Old Testament, the story of Israel being in captivity, the story of Moses and the story of them being enslaved and they cry out in the wilderness and it's God who begins to set them free. And so what we find in this freedom is it's a new thing happens. 
And so they'd always kind of connected baptism to the moment in which they crossed through the Red Sea. In Egypt, they were slaves. And when they crossed through the other side, they were God's freed people. And for us, this becomes important as we think about what does it look like for us to be a people who are baptized, leaving one life in which we know what's going on and wandering into a new place where we don't know what's next. But to the Jews in the wilderness, baptism was somebody else's deal. See, the people longed for a new exodus, a new freedom. They were oppressed by Rome. What they wanted was not what they got. In fact, they were expecting God to do something new. They were expecting God to come the way he had always come, the way they had always understood empires to exist. He would come and he would overthrow and he would raise up. And so when Jesus comes and John's preaching this message in the wilderness, people are excited because they think maybe, just just maybe. As John quotes these words from Isaiah, just maybe this is true and this person's coming. The problem for them was this, that even in John's message, repentance and sacrifice are what lead to freedom, not conquest. You see, I, I think I'd say it this way, true freedom doesn't come at the end of a Roman sword. True freedom comes on a Roman cross. I mean, but that's not how, that's not how empires work. That's not how kingdoms work, right? We overthrow, we rule, we military might, right? We use all these weapons that we have, but that's not the way the kingdom of God comes into work. It is subversive. It is, it is different than all the ways we often think about life. You see, this call to repentance is to be in right relationship with God. And too often we miss that it's our sin that separates us from this right relationship with God. It's the things that we long for. It's our heart that needs to be reshaped and changed. And so baptism is this humbling of ourself to say, God, I will come before you and I will let you so change my heart and my life that I will desperately look like something else because it's humility to say that I need God. And I, I don't think... I don't think we can be too humble. In fact, what I, I think most of us is we, most of us are honest, we probably lack the recognition of our need of God's grace. Maybe not when we first come to know Jesus, but over time, if we're not careful, we, we, we're like, well, God's done this to me, and so why haven't you changed? And we're quick to point a finger or point out something in someone else's life, but we're not really good at looking in the mirror and going, God, is my heart right? Am I living in right relationship with you and with other people? Because the way we live in right relationship, where we model repentance, is through relationship with other people. Are we known by our love? Right, if I were to talk to your friends and your family and your neighbors, would they say, hey, um, man, Bill, Sue, John, Billy, when you meet them, man, they are just known by love. They, they are love embodied. Or would your friend go, man, that person is opinionated and political and mean and angry and, and short-sighted. And what would they say? I'm not asking you to ask my wife, by the way. But I don't know about you, but I hope I'm learning more and more to live with humility to acknowledge I don't have it all figured out. To know that I, I desperately need the grace of God and I want to lean into that. And then I want that to describe my life and how I interact with other people. But if we're not careful, 
In fact, one of the greatest knocks on the church today, and honestly, it's probably rightfully earned, is that we lack humility. You just didn't. I mean, the guy literally is the son of God, and he's washing people's feet. He literally could do anything he wanted to do. He could take over in any way he wanted to, and he chose to die on a cross. We're concerned about random rights of all kinds of stuff. The question you know I have to answer is this. Are we living from a place of humility and love, or living from someplace else? Because if it's someplace else, it's not from Jesus. And so what might happen if you and I embraced humility and love as the way of our life? And what, what John's trying to get across is that, that there's a forgiveness you and I can embrace so that the sin that has defined our lives, the brokenness that has defined us, so that, that our own ambitions don't have to define us, but we can be so radically defined by God's forgiveness and his love and his mercy. And I would say it this way. Repentance and forgiveness are a means to this new community that God has come to usher in that we call the church. The church should be so marked by repentance and forgiveness. I don't know about you, but I long to be a part of a people who embrace this idea as a way of life, that we embrace one another with repentance and forgiveness, but we also look at our community with this place of love. Right? If you're not a follower of Jesus today, you can literally ignore most of what I'm saying today. That's totally okay. But if you call Jesus Lord, you can't ignore these things. And here's the thing for you and I. If we're followers of Jesus, when we go out into the world, we can't expect people to respond the way a follower of Jesus should. I just want to be clear on that. That is not the role. Your role is not to call people to repentance and forgiveness if they don't claim Jesus. But here's the good news. God comes to us and invites us to know him. And then the message of John in the wilderness becomes a message that we can embrace as our own. See, John quotes from Isaiah chapter 40, and Isaiah chapter 40 is really the time in the book of Isaiah when the whole book turns. And it goes from being kind of like, oh, woe is me, this is awful, to all of a sudden it's like, hey, here's some hope. And so Isaiah 40 is this scene of hope. And so he he begins talking about this idea of a coming king. And so in the ancient world, here's how it worked with kings, right? This is what happened. If a king was coming to town, they would send the courier ahead, right? The king's servant would go ahead and they would say, hey, make the roads ready. The king is coming. And so they would like go clean the roads and they would do all these things and they would go out and greet the king. And as the king would enter into the community, the people would go out, greet the king and enter in with the king. It's what they did all throughout the ancient world. What John begins to say is this, the king is coming. And he quotes from Isaiah, and he talks about this, that valleys will be filled in, mountains will be knocked down, and rough roads will be made smooth. It's a pretty cool image if you think about it, right? If we think about these kinds of things. And so kings would send the word to prepare the way. And so here's the challenge for you and I. You and I are called to make the way easier for other people to come to know Jesus. Um, love is like dynamite in the mountains. It blows a hole in the way things are. Right, all those drives that I took, there had been dynamite used in every one of those locations to make it possible to even drive through them. 
And this is what love does. Right? I'm pretty serious when I say, if you want to change the world, if you want to see the world look radically different, love more. If you want to see your family change and look different, love more. If you want to see your workplace look different and the relationships look different, love more. If you're a student and you go to school and you want to see your classroom or your lecture room look different, love more. Whatever you do, if you want to change the world in which you and I live, the only way we can really do that is if we learn to love more. We want to embrace the life of Jesus and we speak for the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. And I'd say it this way, our repentance makes it easier for others to know the direction in which we're going. And then then he uses this word from Isaiah 40, all the people will see God's salvation. John was literally talking about Jesus who was coming, like this guy, he's the one, he's literally God's salvation in flesh for you. But here's the challenge for you and I. When you and I have encountered Jesus in such a way that it can change our hearts and our minds and our lives, what happens is that we begin to look different. That when we have repented, we've asked for forgiveness. We've been baptized into a community of faith. By the way, this isn't really the point of the message at all today, but if you've never been baptized and you want to, we'll do it next week. Just let me know. Because there's something about this walking into new life. And if you and I live into this new life that is a reflection of the very life and teachings of Jesus, then other people might begin to see God's salvation through us. See, God's grace leaves room for all, for all people, and it also leaves grace for you and I to come to the place of repentance. And repent, to repent just means to think differently, to turn differently, to make a turn from the direction we're going and go a different direction. Because some of us have been on roads that are curvy and they're going all kinds of places and we're not really sure where we're going. Um, And so John wants to point out, Jesus is making roads straight. He's filling in valleys, he's knocking down mountains, he's making rough roads straight, he's making curvy roads so that they don't have to be curvy anymore, right? He's doing these things and here's what he's doing. Here's how he's doing it, by love. But what about, no, love. Can I have... No, love. But isn't there a different way? Maybe. Because here's the thing. By pointing people to Jesus, we acknowledge our own sin, our own repentance, and we invite others into this journey with Jesus and us. We help people begin to know that redemption and salvation are for all people from all places. And part of how all people come to know this is by those who've already encountered Jesus. We make rough roads smooth and valleys we raise up. And we do that by how we live. Um, so, so maybe you've heard about Lewis and Clark, right? Like they traveled west and they were trying to Um, get to the Pacific Ocean. They didn't think it was that far away. And so they traveled, if you didn't know this, with canoes. Makes sense, right? You're looking for waterways. They thought there'd be a waterway that they could go west all the way through the United States. Um, It's good in theory, except you and I have been able to see maps and know there is no waterway that goes from the East Coast to the West Coast. It doesn't exist. And so they went off traveling, and in their expedition, they had canoes until they got to the Rocky Mountains, Canoes are not valuable in the mountains. Shocking, I know. 
They can't canoe mountains. And so what did they do? They, they ditched the canoes. They had to adapt, right? They had to change what they were doing because the way in which they were going about this was not going to work. And this is what love is like. Love adapts to the world around us. It doesn't try to canoe mountains, right? Todd Bolsinger wrote a whole book called Canoeing the Mountains, right? It, you adapt to the world in which you live and it begins to change. So this morning... Right, for some of us, our sin's pretty great. For all of us, our sin's pretty great. But God's grace is bigger than that. Making straight paths is hard. We don't know how to do that. Um, but we can offer forgiveness and we can model repentance. One of the ways we model repentance in our community of faith is we gather at the table where we take communion together. And so just a few moments today, we'll actually take communion. Just, just a kind of a side note for that. Um, we have individual servings in the back if you want to grab one of those, or you can come and take what we call intinction, where you take a piece, you dip it in the cup. Um, so there's a few options for that this morning as we take communion. But just want to remind you that there are ways in which we come to the table, and it changes us. See, repentance is this. All spiritual advance begins with turning away from what is hindering our obedience. For all of us, something hinders our obedience. And so what might happen if you and I began to recognize those things? What might happen if you and I had our hearts and our minds and our lives changed? What might happen if you and I began to recognize the ways in which our lack of obedience is hindering us to become all that God has done? For some of us, we keep trying to canoe mountains and we can't figure out why it's not working. We keep going with what we've already known. We go, well, I know a canoe, and I know a paddle, and I keep going this direction, but, like, there's mountains here. There's no waterways. I don't know what to do with this. But what might happen, what might happen if we begin to recognize the mountains that we put around our own hearts? The walls we've created have kept love away? What might happen if we begin to step back and look and go, man, there's some twisted roads that I'm trying to navigate and I just don't know how. What are the bumps in your life that you need God to help you smooth out? What are the ways that you and I don't look like him? And the good news for us this morning is the grace of God comes to us as we are where we are. That God's grace is more than sufficient for where we are. That if we'll embrace these words of John in the desert, that I will be willing to be baptized, to turn from one way of life, I will enter into the waters to be so radically changed that I will look different. And not only will I do this act, but I'll repent. I'll say, God, I've been going this direction down this road, and I want to turn, and I want to go a radically new way. What Jesus reminds you and I this morning is this, that you want to know how far God will go. There's no place God will not go, not even death. That love always seems to find a way. Because that is the character and nature of God. Part of the good news for us today is there is no place we can go, no thing we can do where God's grace is not sufficient to reach us. In Jesus, God went to all the places that are God-forsaken, so there could be no place that is God-forsaken. And even those of us who struggle, who have hard hearts, who are angry, who are hurt, may we 
we've been wounded by the church. We've been wounded by someone we loved or we thought loved us. But the good news for us is we believe in God who is present with us in the midst of heartache and suffering and pain and who is faithful and good and loves us. We see that model in the person of Jesus who came as us for the sake of us. Pray with me this morning. Father, we come before you in these moments and we recognize your grace is greater than we could ever imagine, that somehow your love for us extends in ways that we could never articulate. And we ask that somehow you might speak into our hearts and our minds and our lives, that we might look more and more like your unique people. And we ask today that you'd open our eyes and our ears to be the people of God. That in our own lives, man, whatever, whatever the valleys are that we need to have raised up, whatever mountains need knocked down, whatever roads need straightened or bumpy roads need cleared, whatever it is in our hearts and our minds and our lives, whatever is hindering us from becoming all that you have for us, may we lay it down at your feet. May we trust that your grace is more than sufficient. May we repent of all the ways that we don't reflect your love. May your spirit move into our hearts and change us so that we really do look more and more like your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray.